0: Welcome to the MS Dev Show, Episode number 163. This week we talk with Troy Hunt about how terrible your security is, confusing images for self-driving cars, and is MS Paint being killed off? No.
1: This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Espose, the market leader of .NET and Java APIs for file business formats. Natively work with DOCX, .xslx, .ppt, .pdf msg mpp image formats and many more raygun gives you complete visibility on errors crashes and performance problems affecting your end users replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications check it out today at raygun.com
0: this week, we have Troy Hunt, Microsoft Regional Director and Independent Security Researcher. How's it going, Troy?
2: Yeah, I'm always good down here.
0: <laughs> yeah, down down in the, the sunshine, right? So you're down in, uh, in Australia.
2: I'm down in the sunny part of Australia as well. I don't think a lot of people realize how big the place is here, but yeah. we at the moment, we've got people that are that are snowboarding at the same time as me sitting in the sun on the beach. So oh, it's, really? It's a big spot.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I've been to uh, Brisbane, which was an amazing place. So yeah, right. I, I need to, I need to go check out some of the other areas though. Cause I just loved it down there. The food was good. The weather was good. Well, the weather, especially in the winter. Well, yeah, I think, yeah, the weather was good when I was there. <laughs> yeah. I know some areas yeah. can get hot. And like you <laughs> mentioned it, it varies. I mean, that, that was kind of what blew my mind was even, even the cities along the coast there, you know, how different the weather patterns are. It was pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, okay. So Carl, what do we have for the comment of the week?
1: Uh, the comment this week came from Darren Evans on our website. Um, two episodes ago, we talked about that news article where they were encoding that animated GIF into bacteria, and he said that GIF in bacteria did blow my mind. My next step would be to go completely meta and make a GIF of the first iteration in a session of – can conway's game of life and stuff that in there which is really cool when you think about that yeah um we also talked about that episode uh, about salaries and negotiation and stuff like that and he says he really likes what's going on in the software industry surrounding salary transparency it's one of the reasons he's working towards a career change in, in the industry uh two notable companies leading the way are buffer and we've talked about them quite a bit yep. and that crazy gang over at stack overflow with its salary calculator uh the default to transparency mindset needs to be adopted by all sectors of the industry as well as politics i agree and that's something that uh, we hold uh here quite a bit too we love to be as open as possible Mm -hmm. and if you want to get mentioned on the show uh just like darren did send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com comment on facebook youtube or stitcher and we really like those five-star itunes reviews
0: absolutely okay let's jump into the news uh the first one who uses aws and who uses azure
1: Yeah, this comes from uh, the Stack Overflow blog, and they've showed uh, or kept track of all the tags that have ever been used on their site, what questions are tagged with what, and they kind of tracked Azure and AWS. And what I found kind of interesting is, I mean, there's been some variations uh, here and there, but for questions opened with those tags, it's been pretty uh, even tracking for the different services. Uh, I think a little early on, Azure had a little bit of a lead, and more recently, AWS does, but they're pretty close. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also show a graph of once those questions are opened, who goes to those and AWS is trending, uh, a little bit higher than Azure. So I thought that was interesting com- considering that the questions opened are so similar. Mm-hmm. And then they even go so far as to, uh, technology stack for each one. Um, obviously you might see a little bit more C sharp on Azure and, uh, you see a little bit more Node.js on AWS, mm-hmm. but kind of like a lot of the rest, they're kind of huddled together. So outside of those, uh, two technologies they are pretty similar. Mm-hmm.
0: And, um, and take all of this with a grain of salt, because the, you know, as, as one of the comments pointed out, I mean, this is based off of stack overflow questions, you know? So mm-hmm. like, if you're, if you're happily using Node.js on Azure, then you, you know, like you you're wouldn't not be gonna ask a question. Yeah. You wouldn't be counted in this. I'm not saying that, you know, it's not without issue, but, um, that is something that would skew the numbers one way or another. Um, any other comments on that one? Okay. Microsoft paint to be killed off after 32 years. It's funny when when I, when I saw this on one of the sites, the way that they had this one stated, it sounded like, like the end of, you know how we have like the crazy end of support (laughs) lifespan. I thought it was like, Oh, this is your warning 32 years from now, like support will end for paint. (laughs) Uh, but no, so this one, I, I think there's a lot of misinterpretation out there, right, Carl?
1: Yes. Um, First of all, you know, there, there is going to be a paint product in there, but I think that's uh, paint 3D is going to be out there. Yeah. So we're, we're not going to be entirely without it. But, you know, I, I think as somebody who's at least my age and grew up with computers, I remember uh, as a as a middle schooler going shopping with my parents for a computer. And I would be sitting there with the spray can on paintbrush, mm-hmm. you know, just making all sorts of little designs in. in Best Buy or wherever we were at the time. So it is a a little bit nostalgia. Uh, Although at the same time, as we move forward through my professional career, I only open paint by accident because I have (laughs) paint.net installed. So
0: yeah, I always (laughs) uh, (laughs) use, I I have fond memories of uh, Mac paint. And, in, and there were no colors back then. I, I, I lived in a time before color. <laughs> so there were different patterns of paint brushes and stuff like that. Um, so I actually, I actually never use, I haven't used paint much. I use, I end up using paint.net. Um, we'll have to include a, a link in the show notes. I recently uh, changed the, the edit menu um, in, in windows. So whenever I right click on an image and I hit edit, um, I set it up. So it opens up paint.net that actually requires a registry edit, believe it or not, but I can, uh, I can or you
1: could just do open with.
0: Sure. But I mean the edit, you don't have to go into a nested menu and then pick from a menu. You just pick edit. So, um, so I'll have, I'll have that tip in there for, for everybody. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's deprecated and I I don't know the, the rest of this isn't too clear though either. Right. Um, we'll have to, we'll have to see what actually happens with this. Um, because it's, there's all, there's definitely a vocal minority of people that are upset about this. So we'll have to see what actually happens with that. Um, this image is why self-driving cars come loaded with many types of sensors.
1: Yeah. So the leading image on this uh, article by the MIT technology review shows a minivan that on the back of it, it has a bunch of bicyclists on there and it shows kind of like uh, you've seen those machine learning boxes where they put a box around something and with the descriptor of what it thinks it is. Mm-hmm. And it's labeling these items, which are a, a picture on the back of the minivan. They're labeling them as a bicycle and as a person.
0: Yeah. And it probably thinks that they're really close, too, and it's probably freaking out the system.
1: Yeah. And, you know, know, I I think that in in this case, it's not something horrible because it's going to be a little bit more cautious. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it makes you think there are things that maybe people might be putting on the back of these vehicles to trick uh, automated vehicles into hitting them more often. And oh, claiming man. some sort of insurance or something. I mean, you a think about how air. it works. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the car is driving the wrong direction.
1: Yeah, it could put some image of a vehicle that looks like it's really far away.
2: Oh, geez. You, you know, know what I thought when I, when I saw yeah. this? I'm, I'm thinking like these these are like static pictures. Like, do, do we not have right. the technology to to see that this thing isn't moving? You know, like nope. it's probably not a bike <laughs> for a
0: person. Nope, we haven't invented that yet.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, we we may actually have a long way to go
0: yeah so that that was the point is like combining multiple sensors and actually um you know based on a story that we covered in a previous episode so try i don't know if you've seen that the uh the machine learn- learning learning al- algorithms that played miss pac-man uh but what they did it was pretty clever they actually had a whole bunch of different algorithms they had one that was its goal was to avoid enemies and another one was to you know get pellets and they all had sort of a priority about how bad they wanted to, to do the thing that they wanted to do so they were they were saying you know the the one that was a, trying to avoid enemies would say go left because there's an enemy to the right. And then the other one would say, well, I want you to go right. Cause there's a pellet there, but the one that was scoring the, uh, you know, the end for the enemies had a higher priority. So, you know, that kind of reminds me of this, like you'd have all these separate systems and they would all sort of have a score. You know, there's like the visual system saying one thing and then the depth system is-, is saying something else like, uh, no, there's just one van in front of you. Um, but in this case, I don't know. I- again, um, you know, you mentioned the depth sensors, but honestly, if, if you were, if you were working on that machine algorithm and you, you got this strong signal that you're about to hit a bike or, or something like that, um, I would think that you would put that in as a pretty high priority and you try to avoid that even if the depth sensor doesn't show that data. But anyway, it just kind of shows the the complexity and and how interesting some of these problems are. And then if you want to make it even more interesting, now you put this into the trolley problem, right? So now you have, um, you know, I don't know, you have uh, uh, somebody crossing the street with a baby and then it has a choice between hitting the baby or hitting the back of this van. But it thinks the van is actually three bikes and a van. <laughs> and it's like, well, hang on, I'm going to kill, you know, two people instead of three. Um, so <laughs> then you're going to have people being being malicious, you know, I don't know, pictures of babies on the back of their vehicle or something.
2: I wonder if they're actually that self-aware, you know, I've, I've heard this thing before this, you, you have to make an ethical decision. Like how many mm-hmm. people do you kill? But I, I, I don't know. Like if, if anyone does know, actually, I would love to find out like, are these, these self-driving cars aware enough to make moral judgment decisions or is it just yeah. like, these are objects, let's not hit them. Yeah. Carl
0: and I have argued over this before. And so to answer, to answer your question, I would say right now, no, the, I don't think they are self-aware enough. I mean, I just, I don't think we're to that point. Um, but the, the, the point that I, I've always made and I've stuck to it is the fact that the computer and the sensors over time are going to get to a level of sophistication where it does understand that. Right. So it looks at this, eventually it's going to look at this scene here. I mean, we can see that it's on a car. And there's no reason why a computer can't do the same thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's going to say, okay, there's a Jeep on the left. There's a van in front that van has some pictures of bicycles. I'm just going to ignore that. And there is a baby over here. And, you know, I don't, you know, a a bus full of children over here. And it's going to get into that situation where it has a choice to make. Um, And, you know, somebody has to, I I just feel like we're going to have to score that at some point. I mean, if you avoid scoring it, then you're just, I mean then what do you tell somebody like you'd have to actually run that simulation right like we we run cars into walls right now to test how safe they are like you would end up you'd say this machine learning algorithm is, is so complicated I don't understand it so I'm going to have to set up this crazy convoluted scenario I'm going to have to see what happens and then I'm going to have to see if I agree with it so even if you disagree that you ever have to solve that problem you are you would be able to test it and see what it does And then you could, then people would, people could say, I disagree with the decision it made and I want you to tweak it. And it could happen through legislation thoughts. (laughs) Okay. Well, that was a, that was just a a light topic there. (laughs) Any final remarks, Carl, before I move on? Nope. (laughs) Carl's like, I'm not. We'll get, we'll
1: get, we'll get sidetracked.
0: Yeah. We need a whole episode on that one. Um, okay. Raspberry Pi simulator. Microsoft creates online tool for prototyping projects. This is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, um, Microsoft has built a, an online simulator. So this isn't just a simulator where you download and run. You actually go to azure-samples.github.io slash raspberry-pi-web-simulator and they have a little example of... uh a Raspberry Pi with a sensor and an LED, and you can actually hook it up to your own Azure IoT Hub uh, account in Azure and run your own code against it, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but this is pretty early days. Like if you want to add additional sensors and stuff, you can code for it, but the, the image that represents that isn't going to update at this point, they're going to be adding more and more features like that. But if you don't really want to like go out and put the effort of, you know, ordering a Raspberry Pi, but you still want to play around with it, this uh, might be a good uh, way to get going on that.
0: Yeah. Very well said. I'm not sure what to add to that. <laughs> I was wondering if there's a tool like in, uh, cause obviously the Raspberry Pi just runs Linux, right? So, I mean, you could run a Linux VM. I'm wondering if there's like a simulation tool as well that you could run within there, uh, for additional prototyping, but this is kind of cool, uh, for, for doing like the GPIO stuff. Um, and our last news story here, the million dollar homepage as a decaying digital artifact. I found this one far more interesting than I thought. I, I, I remember when this site was popular.
1: Yep. I remember when they were first getting, you know, selling these pixels. So yeah. And I really hate the, the guy for,
0: who made it I'm
1: yeah. <laughs> out of joke. So, so for the people that uh, don't remember or recall what we're talking about, the milliondollarhomepage.com uh, was a website where somebody was selling off 10 by 10 blocks of pixels for what, like a dollar a pixel? Dollar pixel, yep. And, you know, in an effort to make a million dollars, which is why it was called the million dollar mm-hmm. homepage. And what, what's interesting is, you know, he sold out, all of the pixels and you could uh, have whatever pixels you wanted on there and you could have them link to whatever website mm-hmm. and and this uh, article kind of is like you know however many years later what is it like 12 or 15 uh years after it ended uh, kind of is like you know what is the status of this right now and what well you can go there and you can see the pixels as they were when he last sold everything uh the thing that I th- thought was really interesting is how the how the links either have died or redirected or in some cases are still active and there's some interesting stats on that uh, um as well
0: yeah that's the part that i found interesting is like like half the links are dead you know these people and then they equa- spent all this money for this advertising and <laughs> now they have nowhere to send it to
1: and then they equated the number of pixels for those links into like how much money was you know 12 years later doesn't redirect anymore or is dead
0: yeah exactly Hmm. very cool where did, did you uh troy when it when that was popular where were you aware of it
2: i honestly can't recall it i, I mean i'm just okay. looking at it now and uh, all right it, it's a it's an absolute eyesore. so there's that uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, are, are but you I, having seizures <laughs> i was like yeah i was clicking around going i wonder where this actually goes and it's it, it just like sort of hearing it for the first time now it's, it's kind of like one of these crazy sort of web heyday things that it just made absolutely no sense, <laughs> but but somehow it stuck. That is yeah, curious. the guy was
0: he was like in his early twenties, I think, and mm-hmm. he put it up there and made a million dollars. It's just it's just ridiculous. And then and then of course everybody copied this, and all the copycats, of course, you know, it, it just required, you know, it, it sat there for a while, but then all these news outlets picked it up, and uh, you know they basically. They basically made him that million dollars by promoting this thing. I mean, he got a whole bunch of free advertising out of it and then uh, sold these pixels. And I don't know. It's just it's funny how it's kind of like a secondary market for advertising and very successful. Um, Okay, well, let's talk to Troy for the reason that Troy is here, um, which is security, which is. Uh, actually a, a fascinating topic like i i i love the, the stuff that you put out there it's it's great and i, I love it also whenever you kind of stick it to these companies whenever they're doing <laughs> something stupid because there were so many there's so many times when i see like really stupid behavior and i'm like that's stupid and I wish I could articulate why and then you come along and you're just like pff, pff, you you articulate it perfectly. And I'm just like, yeah, you go, Troy. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you for your service.
2: (laughs) I do these workshops and and trainings and I'll I'll go into companies and teach about security things. And they'll go, we've got you in here so that we don't end up on your blog. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I had not thought about, like, this was not a plan, right? But somehow that, that actually works out okay. And I'm quite okay with it. Yeah.
0: Well, that's got to be great. I mean, that, that that's that's actually got to feel just great, you know, like catching, you know, having them like say, "Oh, we're going to do this, this and this," and you're like, "No, no, no."
2: <laughs> it, it does feel a little bit like a protection scheme when they put it like that. But yeah, uh, you know, hey, the, the the ends to that is is normally very good for everyone. Yeah, absolutely,
0: <laughs> yeah. So I guess kind of the the place that we we're going to start here, um, we'll start with you know, we we keep seeing all these like ju- these high profile companies that that end up getting hacked. Um, Sony is the one that really like pops into my head, right? And they even had they ran into the situation where you know supposedly. Um, like the, the CIO or the CTO was saying, Hey, I need a million dollars. Like we're insecure. Somebody's going to hack us or, you know, whatever the dollar amount may be, you know, please let me spend this money. I want to fix this issue. This is like super obvious. Um, otherwise we're going to get hacked and they say no. And then of course they got hacked. Um, so like how, how hard is it for these companies to secure their system? I mean, is this just like a losing battle? Is this just impossible?
2: So there was a, a case recently, which I think resonates with this. So everyone saw that this WannaCry ransomware, right? This was a couple yep. of months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and WannaCry got a massive foothold in the NHS in the UK, which is like the national health system. It's the, you know, you, you get sick, you go to the doctor, they're plugged into NHS, you go to the hospital. it's, it's the NHS. It's a massive part of keeping everyone healthy. And they got hit really bad with this. And we're sort of going, well, well, hang on a second. Like, we had a situation where Microsoft came out. They said, here's a critical patch. You should really take this. Mm -hmm. And then a month later, we had this sort of shady shadow crew or shadow brokers crew uh, dump all these exploits that were allegedly stolen from NSA, which had exploits that Microsoft had patched a month earlier. And then a month after that, this WannaCry thing comes and owns people. And you're going, you had two months to patch your things. Like, why wasn't it done? And I, I think the point here, uh, to, to your observation as well, which is why aren't organizations getting their stuff right? I can imagine some poor IT manager in the NHS or some poor CIO in, in Sony saying, We need money in order to protect ourselves, in order to look after these things. And someone's holding the purse strings and they're saying, Okay, you need X number of dollars right now. What's it going to save us? And so, well, right. I, I don't know. We might not get hacked. All right, well, if we do get hacked, what's it going to cost us? I don't know. It could be bad. And what I find is that you're trading off a, a very sort of discrete, tangible, immediate cost with, with a potential return on it later on. And I can see how this makes their life very, very hard, particularly when in so many organizations technology is seen as a cost, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's, there's technology that costs us money. There's sales and marketing that makes us money. We've got to right. try and reduce the cost. Ben, they've <laughs> done that. we have all probably been there and done that and i I think this is what's going on within a lot of these organizations yeah that's painful
1: so how how is we as developers and it professionals i mean a lot of what you were saying before that's like you know business decisions but how how can we the rank and file developers and it pros help prevent these incidents where we work
2: Well, I think one of the things we've got to recognize is there are aspects of security where the difference between doing it well and doing it bad is not a cost thing. And and I'll give you a good example. Let's take SQL injection. So SQL injection is still a massive thing. So all these years later, it is still up there as the, the number one risk on the web. Uh, at least according to OWASP. So OWASP, the Open Web Application Security Project, they create this document of the top 10 web application security risks. And they've got a uh, candidate release for 2017 at the moment. And it's basically the same as, 20, as, as 2007 in terms of that number one risk. SQL injection. Now, you can write code which is entirely resilient to SQL injection, and it is the same number of lines and the same amount of effort as code, which is, which is absolutely terrible, which is going to get you on something serious. And the, the difference between all this is just the education piece. So in answer to your question, one of the things that, that we can do much better uh, as, a, as an industry is to get people trained and to get them educated, because that just pays off in spades over and over again, project after project. Oh,
0: I, th- I thought you were saying something after that. Um, I was just looking at this at this OWASP. I have I actually haven't seen this before. On uh, Carl had a had a comment on it. So so what is does this I, I see in here, yeah, number one is is injection, of course. Um, which is just unbelievable in this day and age. <laughs> um th- so does this, this actually tell
2: us then kind of how do you, how we can mitigate that? Yeah, so the nice thing about uh, Oh yeah, OWASP how do I prevent is, this? Yeah, look at that. that- that said, if you go down, and, and for, for anyone who's, who's not familiar with this, OWASP is uh, O-W-A-S-P. Uh, so yeah. if you do a Google for OWASP, uh, you'll find it. And for each one of these risks, uh, say injection, uh, which incidentally is a superset of SQL injection. There is SQL injection and LDAP injection and other query languages which could be injected. And... There'll be a single page here and it says, am I vulnerable? What are the example attack scenarios? How do I prevent it? And then they got all of these references as well. So the, the nice thing about OWASP is that it does sort of lead you by the hand in terms of helping you understand the risk and then talking about how to mitigate it.
0: Yeah, this is, this is awesome. Yeah, because it says... Uh, am I vulnerable? How do I prevent an injection um, example attack scenarios? I'm gonna have to read through this This is actually fascinating. Uh, I was expecting, I was expecting something like a, like a, I don't want to say white paper, but maybe like a specification where it's gonna be like 300 pages. Uh, right. But th- this is actually, I mean, it's like a page for, for each one.
2: I mean, like, shouldn't everybody go and read this? You're expecting something boring, which is what a lot of the security content is. So, you know, on that education space, there's there's free and open material like this. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff on my blog as well. There's a lot of, uh, lot of content on Pluralsight. I've got 30, 31 courses on Pluralsight oh, wow. at the moment that cover stuff like this. I mean, if you really want to know about SQL injection, there's a five-hour course. And Pluralsight <laughs> is cheap. You know, you sit down there, you pay your 29 bucks a month or whatever, and, and you watch five hours of content. Uh, and the the chances of you screwing up SQL Injection after that, if you're paying attention, are, are pretty pretty slim. <laughs> <laughs> Aspose offers a powerful set of
1: file management APIs with which developers can create applications, which can create, open, edit, and save the majority of popular business file formats. Their product range supports a multitude of file formats, including Word documents, Excel spreadsheets, PowerPoint presentations, PDF documents... OneNote, Outlook, Project, Visio files, popular image formats, and many others. Aspose produces APIs for .NET, Java, and the cloud, which can be utilized in almost any modern language available today. Visit Aspose.com for a free 30-day no-limitations trial, and if you get stuck, message the friendly support team for help. All technical support is offered free of charge. And remember, if you are lucky winner, you will receive a free developer small business license for expose.net, a powerful toolkit for working with Word documents in your applications. Moving on to, uh, you know, another topic. You run a site called Have I Been Pwned? It's a great site for us to see. We can kind of plug in like a personal account and see if they've been in any compromise. So kind of like, how does the site work and how do you collect all of this information? How do you know that my my email address was part of a compromise somewhere?
2: Yeah, good question. So have I been pwned as a data breach aggregation service, which means that when companies get uh, hacked and their data gets spread around the place, various nefarious parties out there obtain that. Uh, they often trade it. There's a really big data breach trading scene where people are, are either freely swapping data with each other or they're commercializing it. And occasionally this sort of floats up to enough of the surface where I can I can find it on online uh, sources. A lot of people who support what I'm doing send me the data. And I, I get all of this and I aggregate it. And I load it all into Azure. It all goes into a, a, a massive uh, Azure table storage service. And then you come along to the site and you plug your email address in and it comes back and it tells you where you've appeared. And, and basically the, the sort of maintenance of this project largely involves... People sending me data, me going through parsing it, making sure it's legitimate, loading it into the system, and then I've got 1.3 million something subscribers to the service. And every time I load data in there, it goes through that list and it says, "Okay, well you're in this breach. I'm going to send you an email." Uh, and it's it's a free service. You just plug in your address, and you you then inevitably sooner or later you get notifications.
0: Yep. Yeah, I put uh, I put my stuff in. I actually did this a long time ago, and now you have. billion accounts. (laughs) So that's basically
2: leaked instances,
0: right? Leaked counts.
2: That's right. I, I got a That's feeling it's going to be Four billion by the end of the day, actually. <laughs> so <laughs> some, some other stuff I'm dealing with at the it moment. It should say
0: like you know billions and billions served.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I know, I know. And and to be clear as well, when we talk about you know, almost four billion, uh, this is uh, records, and there's actually probably about three billion unique email addresses, or, or maybe just under three billion. And and the reason why is that people like myself have appeared in multiple different data breaches. So I have been in uh, Adobe, LinkedIn, Dropbox, Plex, uh, a bunch of these ones. So I have sort of one email address, which has ultimately been exposed many times resulting in multiple records.
1: And what I think is really great about this, like I can log in with my main credentials here and see that it was leaked in at least three different known occasions. Uh, And then I use LastPass. So I go through there and I look at the uh, passwords that are used and I'm using unique passwords. So I'm like, okay, I changed the password for that particular account and it didn't affect any of my other accounts. So I have a, a good deal of comfort when I see my name on this site and I can use my other tools to trace that.
2: Yeah, and, and this is really the the hopefully the end game for your, your everyday consumers is that if you're using a password manager and you're creating strong and in particular unique accounts on each one of these services – it's never fun seeing your data leaked, but at least that's isolated, right? It's like, okay, I've been mm-hmm. exposed in, in, say, Dropbox. That password was genuinely unique. And in fact, when I, when I got the Dropbox data in August last year, the way I verified it is that my email address was in there with a bcrypt hash of a password and I went to my I went to my 1Password password manager and I pulled out this crazy random 40-character password, yeah. whatever it was, bcrypt hashed it and went, oh, look, they're the same. What are the chances of that? Well, the chances of that are basically zero <laughs> because it is a genuinely random password and it's exactly the same as the one in Dropbox. Uh, but it meant that my risk was isolated to that one Dropbox account and they never would have cracked the password in a million years anyway.
0: Right. Yeah, that's... Uh- yeah, that's pretty cool. I'm trying to think if there's any flaws with that verification, but that that makes sense because nobody would put you in their database. Yeah, cuz they, they wouldn't know the password. So, yeah, that's a pretty good. So, you just you need to make sure you sign up for like every site that's out there <laughs> that
2: <laughs> well, way you can verify it. You know, so here's the the neat thing that I can do now because I've got these 1.3 million something subscribers, mm-hmm. I have a subscriber in every data breach. Mm-hmm. So, what I tend to do now is is when I get a new breach and I, I can cross-reference. Now, if I'm not immediately sure whether it's legit, and, I, and I'll give you an example of, of how I can be sure it's legit. If, if I get yep. given uh, an, an alleged breach, there's a million records in there, and I'll go through and I'll pick out uh, a few email addresses. And what I'll normally do is I'll, I'll find Mailinator addresses. So Mailinator is this free service where you can send an email to mm-hmm. anything at mailinator.com and then you go to mailinator.com and then you can check the mailbox so they're not intended to be private accounts they're really accounts that are like throwaway you know like i just created this thing because i needed an account to get through the front door so i'll go through and i'll find say three mailinator accounts amongst the million and i'll go to the password reset on the website that's, uh, that's the, the one that's been allegedly breached and i'll plug it in and if each one of those accounts gets an email so like, okay this is very very likely going to be legit now, you can't always do that, and there are also times where I need to be extra confident. So I will take those million addresses. I'll find the last, say, 30 Have I Been Pwned subscribers that were in there, and then I'll send them an email and go, hey, look, you've, uh, you've popped up in a, a data breach somewhere. Would you like to help verify it? And, of course, they're always curious, So they say, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll help. So that sort of gives me the the reach to always have someone who is in that data, who has given me their data with the expectation of of being told when something like this happens.
1: Very cool. So you also have an API for Have I Been Pwned? So what are the interesting things that you've seen people build off of your free API here?
2: Look, there's been a heap of stuff, uh, both good and bad, so I've I've had to take a (laughs) few, uh, let's say, defensive measures here. Look, the the good stuff, you'll see that that there's actually an API Consumers page. It lists things like iOS apps, Android apps, Windows Phone apps. Uh, It lists integration into various other security tools, open source intelligence tools. I know that there are many organisations that are, that I've spoken to in the past that have said, "Look, we've used this to go through and check the exposure uh, of people in our company." Now, incidentally, right, yeah. there is actually a, a, a free domain search tool, which is much better than just going and plugging in individual addresses, because oh, yeah, it up. just that's tells you here is. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny how many people don't see it because I get emails and they say, hey, this is awesome, but it would be really neat if there was a way of searching across entire domain. And I'm like, yeah, 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 just like that link in the nav which says domain search. And, and uh, yeah, often people miss it, but that is there. And, again, that's free as well. You've just got to verify that you control the domain and that will come back and give you give you info. So uh, there's sort of some of the ways the API has been used. There was a point there, in fact, probably for the first Two and a half years it was it was not rate limited, it was intended to be as easily consumable as, as much as possible. And if, if I'm honest, I'm, I'm kind of surprised I went that long before people started screwing with it in ways that they probably shouldn't have been. <laughs> but uh, around probably around August last year, I just started seeing a, a huge amount of enumeration of it. So what I was seeing was people working through very large lists of data in a sequential fashion. And this was email addresses which were clearly not part of one organization. And then on top of that, I was finding that there was just a sudden influx of requests coming from a lot of Eastern European IP addresses with randomized user agent strings and and stuff that made it hard to actually identify a pattern of abuse uh, and, and sort of lock out one IP or one user agent. So I started seeing, uh, I guess, unethical behaviour. So eventually, I put a rate limit on it and said, "Look, you can make one request every fifteen hundred milliseconds, and that's fine for sort of normal, legitimate use. Uh, but if if you're bad guys, then that puts a stop to things pretty quickly." That works.
0: Um, yeah. So, whenever you first created the site, like, what what gave you the idea to to create this? And was there was there anything else like this? I mean, is this the first of its kind? I mean, it's the first that I ever heard of for sure.
2: Well, in answer to the first question, it was a combination of uh, I was doing analysis on data breaches and I was looking for patterns, you know. So what can we tell about the way people create passwords, for example, by looking at data breaches and all the sorts of terrible things that you would assume about the way people create passwords is true. (laughs) But the, the other thing I was finding that I found interesting was that the prevalence of one individual appearing across multiple data breaches. And I was looking at this going, I wonder if they know. You know, like, do they know <laughs> that they have been in all of these separate incidents? Right. And this was late 2013, and it was around the time of the Adobe data breach, and they had 150 million something accounts. And I was like, I should just make a service out of this. And at the same time, I was starting to do a lot more work with Azure, and I was like, let's build something cool on Azure. Yeah, because I think a lot of it's yeah. like this, right? It's I didn't want to do Hello World. Like, I wanted to do something actually interesting and useful. Yeah. And I didn't know that it would become popular and that it would, it would teach me a lot about sort of scale and, and <laughs> large traffic volumes and stuff like this, uh, but it has. So that's, that was sort of the, the genesis of it.
0: Yeah. So on, and- on Azure, I know you have some blog posts about that. Actually, I, I was kind of curious um, if you want to talk at all about the scale and costs and things like that, because I know you've talked about that in the past.
2: Yeah, so the, I guess in terms of, of the way it's put together, first of all, it everything is is platform as a service. So mm-hmm. I am a, a big supporter of not being responsible for infrastructure, and I I'm just amused every time people say, "But it means you can't remote in, you can't see like the blinky lights, and you can't install stuff." And I <laughs> don't goodness. want the responsibility. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank goodness, <laughs> right? And uh, and particularly at the time, I was working in a, in a corporate role. Uh, and I was responsible for architecture and the, and the design of how we'd build a lot of these systems. And I, every time I tried to push people towards PaaS, you, you'd get this very old-school thinking pushback from the IaaS school, where it's like, we want servers. Yeah. And uh, Have I Been Pwned was a really good example or a really good opportunity to demonstrate why PaaS is so powerful. So it all runs on, on the Azure App Service, uh, which we used to call websites. Uh, as I said before, all the data sits in table storage and table storage is probably the best thing I ever did for this service because it cost me, for, for the almost 4 billion records, it's around about $40 a month for the storage. Like it is super, super oh, cheap. Yeah. The way I've partitioned the data means the lookups are ridiculously fast. So we're talking about as little as around about 6 milliseconds to pull one record out of the system. So if you search for your email address, and I've partitioned it down uh, via domain and alias, so you know these are the two parts of the things you're searching for, the, the the value or the key lookup is very quick. So that happens super fast. It scales, for all intents and purposes, infinitely. I've never met any sort of performance thresholds uh, through organic use. The, the only time I meet uh, performance threshold is when I'm la- uh, loading large volumes of data but certainly even on days where we've had a million people come to the site like table storage is not the thing that's going to give so it uses that as well and it uses a relational database for a bit of processing but it uses a very small scale and i just ramp it up when i need to and that's uh, that's pretty much the nuts and bolts of it and and in essence that the objective i have in running this is i try and keep it to to what you might spend on a couple of cups of coffee a day uh and that's that doesn't always work out that way. Like if I have massive amounts of data to load, uh, there are times where I do use some VMs for some processing and I need larger databases. But for all intents and purposes, it works out in in the low hundreds of dollars uh, per month to run it, which which I'm uh, enormously happy with.
0: That's really cool.
2: I love the work you do around those uh, those blog posts. Yeah, a lot of them, uh, just for, for everyone listening, that they're also for me. They're not just for you. <laughs> like if, if, if I write the blog post... As I'm writing it, I'm going, wow, I I actually hadn't thought about that. Now that I need to explain it to someone, I'm looking at the problem differently. And I I find them enormously useful just to help uh, get my own thought processes down.
1: Taking a a swing back to security, I mean, we see a a lot of companies doing maybe things that are not only bad now, but maybe questionable back when everybody did them. I'm thinking like not letting people paste in passwords and stuff. Mm. How can we as users help them improve. I mean, a lot of times these companies, you let them know and they get hostile when you, you know, give them this kind of feedback, you know, how can we make
0: an an improvement on this? Or they just don't understand it. I mean, I've seen even Troy tweeting at a company saying like, why don't you let me do this? And they come back with the stupidest answers. I mean, they just, (laughs) we have never been hacked. Yeah. Well, no, Uh, they they come back. That was one response to something. or, or,
2: or Or they'll say like, it's for your security. And it's like, oh, (laughs) Because security. This is the reason. It's like, why do you do this crazy, stupid thing? Because security, so I, I think that there are some interesting things there. So, so one of the points was around things that would have been questionable at the time, and and are now just sort of downright unacceptable. One of the interesting things that I find with data breaches, let's take sort of sort of my, something like MySpace. You know, MySpace had 360 million odd accounts exposed, um, and, and from memory they were storing passwords as SHA one or, or something that we would say today is just totally not cool. One of the challenges with data breaches is that. Very often these, uh, these have either happened some time ago in the past or they have happened to systems that were designed some time ago. And what we end up doing is we end up effectively judging the organization's security practices of yesterday's based on the standards of today. And I can sort of get how we've still got a lot of MD5s and SHA-1s and things like that out there because these are systems designed a long time ago. Now, that, unfortunately, a lot of them just haven't had the love uh, to be maintained and upgraded. In terms of, of other things, it's interesting how much our our idea of what is secure versus not secure has changed. So I'll give you guys a scoop. I'm writing a blog post at the moment, which I'll get out either this week or next, and it's called Passwords Evolved, Authentication Guidance for the Modern Era. And this goes through a whole bunch of things that have changed, that we used to do yesterday that we don't do today. And I've referenced a lot of material from NIST. They just came out with some really interesting material uh, around digital identity guidelines and also a lot of stuff from the NCSC in the UK. This is the National Cybersecurity Center. And this is stuff like uh, they have said, for example, you must have or you must allow passwords to be 64 characters or more. There's a lot of websites that still limit it to Twenty or ten? Microsoft still limits it to sixteen. If you want to really? have a, a, a Microsoft account or anything on Azure, or, I'm I'm, a, or, I'm 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 actually kind of surprised by that, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, and also, everyone stop emailing me. I can't do anything about it. <laughs> so, you know, like I, I know <laughs> that this happens. I yeah. know that it's confusing. Well, I can
0: that- um like we have a we have a you know our internal Yammer system, and and we can actually send messages to the to Sacha. Um, that might be something that I post out there.
2: I, I I would love that. I my hesitation is at the number of times this has come up, and and I've certainly discussed it internally yeah. with Microsoft before as well. And that, okay. yeah, the, the simple answer is that there are loads of legacy dependencies, which is right, the re- right, right. often the reason for many companies.
0: Yeah, I I I can imagine. It's not like it's just some character some sitting in code or in a database where they just go, oh no problem, we'll just switch this to you know a thousand.
2: Yeah, this is not like we're going to change our Varcha sixteen to like a Varcha sixty four. Right, exactly. <laughs> oh, God, I hope that's not the case. It's not the case. Uh, <laughs>
0: but, you know, the- <laughs> oh, crap. It's actually using uh, Visual Source SourceSafe on the back end. <laughs> oh, jeez. That
2: that along with Paint is another is another name I haven't heard for many years. Yeah, but for good for good reason. <laughs> there's um there's a lot of other stuff in here as well. Things like you know allowing special characters which seems kind of obvious, there's a lot of systems that don't allow angle brackets or apostrophes because they're trying to prevent against XSS and SQL injection and and other things which, which frankly, there shouldn't be a problem with passwords anyway. Uh, But one of the curious bits of guidance here as well is that NIST has come out and said uh, verifiers, uh, i.e. websites that are implementing verification rules, should not impose other composition rules. For example, requiring a mixture of different character types and prohibiting consecutively repeated characters. Now, this is curious because our, our sort of conventional wisdom has said, you've got to have a lowercase, an uppercase, a number and a symbol and mm-hmm. you know, some other weird, bizarre combination. And uh, what's interesting in, in terms of the way that authentication has evolved now is we're using things like passphrases. And passphrases may be a lowercase sentence with some spaces. You, you may not have uppercase. You may not have uh, symbols. Mm-hmm. so you know that stuff's changed uh password hints they've said are definitely out password hints were terrible you know like sure, it's you don't know what the password is here let me give you as an authentic as an unauthenticated user a suggestion as to what it might be
0: well <laughs> so, and, and now they and now they don't allow, <laughs> allow you to put the password in the hand
2: <laughs> well yeah <laughs> That's but, probably, but, uh, it's
0: probably a good thing
2: I've uh, I've pulled the password hints from the Adobe data breach because they're all in there in plain text. Oh god! And some of the, the top hints were things like my name, Adobe, usual email. So you know, like when someone <laughs> says my pa- password hint is email and it's sitting there next to the email address, take a guess. <laughs> oh! You, you guys have mentioned things like password managers. You know, letting them paste in. Uh, yeah. wh- one of the in fact that there's two other really interesting things in here that I'll um, I'll call out. One of them is that. The the other thing that goes against conventional wisdom is guidance now saying you shouldn't force password rotation on a regular cadence. Now we've probably all been in environments where it's like, oh look, it's the end of the quarter, you got to have a new password, and yep. you go, okay, plus one to the end, <laughs> you know. And and I know how long <laughs> no, I use the same password that. for. A, no, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> I say I think maybe as I get get a little bit older, I'm more comfortable saying how bad I've screwed stuff up or the shortcuts that I've taken myself. And I know how long I would used the same password in the last company because I could take the number at the end and divide it by four, and that's how many years I'd had it for, because this is what people do. So the guidance these days from the likes of NIST and the NCSC is, unless there is a reason to change it, don't. Because if if a hacker does get your password, it's not like they're going to go, well, you know, I'll come back in like three months and use it. No, they're going to use it straight away before you change it. And then the final thing, which I think is really interesting, and this is is more sort of the modern era sort of thing, is NIST in particular have said, uh, when processing requests to establish and change memorized secrets, verifiers shall compare the prospective secrets against a list that contain values known to be commonly used, expected or compromised. For example, this list may include, but is not limited to passwords obtained from previous breach corpuses. So what they're saying is that, as an organization, if people can create passwords on your system, you should make sure that those passwords haven't appeared in previous data breaches, which is really interesting guidance. Yeah. And that can be pretty intensive.
0: I mean, they're, they're going to have to come to your API, and you're going to have to start charging for that. Uh, <laughs> well, or they're going well, to build something.
2: Yeah. So I, I have something else that's going to come out probably next week that'll, that'll help us address this. But okay. uh yeah and, and it it will be a free thing as well but that's that I find a really interesting reflection of the state we're in at the moment which is that there are so many credentials floating around out there on the web you could have a for all intents and purposes a strong password but it might be out there and you might use that strong password in multiple places a lot of people do this i'll say my password strategy is i'm going to have like one password for my you know, not very important stuff and one yeah. for the medium important stuff and then one that I'm gonna use on all my banks and credit cards and well, that, government <laughs> that seems, stuff. <laughs> that seems terrible. <laughs> well it it does for for us sort of sitting here, you know, objectively looking at this, but I get how for a lot of normal everyday people that they kind of okay. you know they're, I, they're segmenting I see, risk.
0: Yeah, I could see the line of thinking I guess that would get you into that, I suppose.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, precisely. Yeah.
0: You're still putting all your eggs in one basket. You're just putting all your golden eggs in one basket and all your regular eggs in a different basket.
2: <laughs> well, that, that's true. But a, a lot of people don't have the tools they need in, in order to be able to manage passwords yeah. securely. And one of the, the the extracts I've got in this blog post from, I can't remember who created the material, is either NIST or NCSC, they said, look, even as organizations, you should provide sanctioned tooling for people to be able to create strong passwords. And, and for, for everyone listening, ha, like, have a think about it. Your company almost certainly says you should have a strong password. It's got to have these mix of characters. You've got to change it regularly. Mm. You've got to do all these things, which is just infeasible to do across the breadth of accounts that we have. So if, if you if you can't do this and store it in your memory, you've got to have some sort of password management tool. How many organizations actually give people a sanctioned tool to securely manage passwords? And it's very, very few.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I shouldn't leak out internal policy, but I know of at least one company that does that.
2: <laughs> there, uh, <laughs> I actually ask this question. So I, I go into companies and do workshops and, and very often we'll have this discussion about good mm-hmm. password structure. And and everyone agrees, like, what constitutes a, a good password. Uh, and then you say, okay, so does your company give you tools to actually do that? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, yeah, and so- we're not allowed to install anything on our machine, so I can't just go and, you know, like, download one password or something like that. Yeah.
0: So at my last company, um, I would talk to the Sarbanes-Oxley um, auditors, and they were the ones that were – uh, bringing up the whole password change issue. And I'd go to them saying, Hey, I think it's a bad practice to, to make us change the passwords all the time. Uh, because that just drives this behavior of writing on a post-it note. I mean, let's take it to an extreme. Let's say you, a person had to have a new password every day and you made the, it, you know, you required, it was totally different than the one the previous day. You're just forcing them to, to write it down somewhere. And you're, you know, you're decreasing security by doing that. And the Sarbanes-Oxley auditor, is like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but we still have to do it this way, you know, just because like the rule was the rule and there was just no changing it. And, and I had a whole bunch of security things that I brought up and he's like, yeah, you're, you're right. That would be better security. But, That doesn't follow these, these public rules. And I was like, are you kidding me? So like, you know, it's, it's, it's like these, these, I don't want to call them like government regulations, but they, they really are, uh, but they're sort of misguided or maybe misinterpreted uh, government regulations are, are causing, uh, you know, weaker security, these companies, which is, which is insane to me.
2: So I'm going to send you guys a a link in our chat window here and Mm -hmm. you might want to share this because this is a classic and I thought about it as soon as you you mentioned socks and auditors. There's a server fault question which is titled our security auditor is an idiot and (laughs) it it goes through the the sorts of things that this security auditor has asked them for which is – like, you know, you, you've got to provide us all the passwords in plain text and things like this, and the security auditor is basically berating this guy saying, you know, I've been doing this for however many years and yep. this is the way the industry works. And you can't help but think that there there are all these sort of bygone era practices and ideals. But what re- is really nice about this NIST stuff I was just mentioning is, you know, like you would expect NIST to potentially be a little bit stuck in the, in the older times because it is, you know, it is sort of government funded and all the rest of it. But it does have really, really good modern day guidance where where a lot of it flies in the face of conventional wisdom. But it's, it's like you said, when you s- sort of take a step back and you look at it and you go, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. You know, like this is, yeah, we probably shouldn't just be continually changing passwords for no reason.
0: Right, right. Oh, my God, this post. Oh, my God, this is.
1: I'm, yeah, I've I'm, read this one before. It's pretty epic. Earth to kill
0: <laughs> rising. Holy cow. <laughs> oh, man. I just, and the thing is, like, I, I almost don't want to believe this, but I was in this situation and it was so frustrating. So, like, I, this is totally legit. This is just unbelievable. Man, how frustrating. So, like, even the people that know, <laughs> you know, like, the, the right things to do or they 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 kind of know the right direction to go are not empowered to do so. I mean, that's. That's crazy. Okay. Well, we have, we have to move on from that question.
1: Don't wait for users to report problems. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications supports all major programming languages and platforms, and integrates with your current development workflow tools too there's a free 14-day trial and it takes minutes to implement so start resolving issues in your application and check it out today at raygun.com.
0: so I'm kind of curious around um, social media attacks or not even social media this uh, social engineering um, you know because we let's just say we have perfect security and I've heard this stat and I don't know if this is true or not but this whole thing where like you know uh, like 90% of users will give up their password for a candy bar um, I don't know if that's <laughs> true but like I've 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 worked with people and Um, I guess they, they knew me, but people that I've relatively, I haven't known very well, you know, it's like, Oh, Hey, I need to fix this thing. And I'm like, what's your password? And like, they, they just happily give it up. I mean, um, with, without a a second guess. So like, I I mean, aren't we totally screwed because of all this social engineering? I mean, doesn't that just totally destroy all the work that you're doing?
2: So. Uh, yeah, firstly, social engineering is, is enormously powerful because it's it's something that is just really, really effective at circumventing digital controls. Um, while we're, we're sending links around, I'm going to give you another one, which is mm-hmm. kind of interesting to that effect. This is a, a Jimmy Kimmel piece from, uh, when was this? Probably, yeah, 2015, where a reporter goes out on the street uh in hollywood and is asking people what their passwords are how they create passwords and these people are just just telling them they're like oh it's my dog's name and the year i graduated high school and then the reporter's like oh what kind of dog have you got you know which is not related to the password but it creates this this rapport yeah. then they go oh you know it's like a fox terrier or something like that oh what's his name <laughs> and then this stuff yeah you know, it's, it's a video oh, so you can listen to it later but it's, it is hilarious so there's that side of things which which is very very effective. And then the, the the problem we've got is that people are so susceptible to to being engineered by a by a friendly operator. Uh, and they're so I, I think what it is is that people innately want to believe other people are good and don't necessarily approach everything with suspicion. But it is so easy to engineer them in so many different ways. Now a, a really good example of engineering is that if you're on facebook.com and you press F12 to go to the dev tools and then you click on the console tab. Now, many people probably wouldn't have realized this is there. I'm going to do it again so I can read it. Uh, Down to console is a big red warning. It says, stop. This is a browser feature intended for developers. If someone told you to copy and paste something here to enable a Facebook feature or hack someone's account, it is a scam and will give them access to your Facebook account. Now, this is referred to as self-XSS, and, and what it is, is it's literally someone writing JavaScript and then telling someone else to run it in the console of their browser, in the context of a site like Facebook.
0: That's unbelievable.
2: And, and what the, the question you've got to ask yourself here is that if you could run whatever JavaScript, so you being an attacker, you could run whatever JavaScript you wanted in someone else's browser in the context of any website, what would you do? And it's like, well, (laughs) you could do a lot. You can steal cookies. You can redirect them to other places. You can post to their wall. You could make them befriend you. It's just, it is an endless set of possibilities. Uh, And this, again, is social engineering because someone, and I imagine they're kids, right? Uh, So one kid's going, hey, uh, if you want to see which girls at school like you, uh, just copy this great big obfuscated whack of JavaScript, hit F12, go to console, paste, enter, job done. (laughs) And and this is precisely what it is, and it's it's just amazing that that this is a thing. But th- this is social engineering in action.
0: Yeah. How how do they do this? this? Is Facebook that's like writing to the console, right? But how do they change yep. the font and everything? Is there all console yeah, users
2: so, apparently? Well, you can view source and you can see it. But yeah, it's uh, you you can do this in in the console. So you can you can write in a in a nice uh, very overt uh, fashion wow. like this. And when you think about it, this is actually a really neat defense as well because it's the simplest thing. It's just logging to console, but yeah. it's really, really obvious too.
0: Yeah. That is crazy that they had to do that.
2: <laughs> <I know. laughs> Makes sense. I, know. That. I, I, I am just a little bit impressed, to be honest, that people yeah. are actually doing this. You know, <laughs> well, Not just Facebook, but, <laughs> that other people have sort of weaponized these attacks. But th- this is also an area where there are some really neat security defenses as well. So we've got things like content security policies, CSPs which is is a response header in the website. And the response header will tell you things like, uh, these are the places that the website is allowed to post forms to. Uh, this is where they're allowed to load JavaScript from. Um, this is where they can load CSS from. And these CSPs can be really, really resilient to Attacks like this, and particularly to traditional XSS attacks where people want to embed a script from an external source into your site or they want to change the login form so it posts to an attacker's site. So we've got evolving defenses that can help tackle this stuff as well. So
1: before you mentioned kind of offhand that, you know, some companies would call you in so they wouldn't have to. Uh, hear about themselves on your blog <laughs> and and you know a lot of that is is you see how some companies have acted really poorly to insecurities, but there's some uh, companies out there that have been applauded for releasing when they've been hacked or have data exfiltrated so what What kind of tips can you give us so if our company happens to be one of those companies, we can have a response plan to properly handle um you know what has happened?
2: Yeah, good question. So I uh, I have a blog post, and I'm, I'm going to give you guys more links Uh-oh. for show notes and things as well. Now this is data oh, breached... Can you hear us Troy? Yep, yeah, yeah. You hear oh, we're well, good. Yeah, you're good. Is this... yep. Might be the Australian internet. <laughs> so let, let me try that again. There is a a blog post. I just flicked you guys a link for this as well, called Data Breach Disclosure One Hundred and One: How to Succeed After You've Failed. And, and this really sort of addresses that question. And it's it's a whole bunch of things. So. You know, like a really obvious one for organizations is, do you actually have a way for people to submit security vulnerabilities? Mm. Now, now this sounds like it's ridiculously simple, but it is so hard for me and for many other people when we learn of a vulnerability or an incident just to get in touch with the right people. And it sounds crazy, but it is just an absolute nightmare. And if you want to see a really good example of this, of how to do it right, Uh, Go to Tesla, and on Tesla's legal page, they have a vulnerability reporting policy. And they say, here's the email address to contact us on. Here's a PGP key if you want to encrypt it. Here's how long we will take to get back to you. It's beautiful. So, you know, just having a way of reporting makes makes things much easier. Uh, Treating any of these things with a sense of urgency. So if someone reports a vulnerability, like, actually take this seriously. (laughs) You know, like, don't just go, hey, it's some some nut job from somewhere. Uh, Prioritize this. Disclosure is a really important thing as well. And depending on where you are in the world, and even depending on what state you're in in the US, you may have different disclosure responsibilities. Uh, But very often, I'm seeing cases where organizations have had breaches, and then they've tried to cover it up. Uh, I recently wrote a piece about uh, the AA, which is the Automobile Association in the UK, and they covered up their data breach and, and then they got found out covering it up. So didn't work out real well for them. Uh, lots of other things like disclosing it early if there's an incident. You can't just sort of sit on it for months whilst people's accounts are getting exploited. Uh, usually, uh, organisations do this to minimise the, the reputation damage, but yeah, again, they get found out. It doesn't work really well. And a bunch of other tips. So, you know, hopefully that's a good resource for people if if the worst does happen.
0: And then um, I'm kind of curious what your take is on this. So um, this comes up all the time. And I know I, I've talked about it on the show quite a bit. This this idea, there's all these um, devices that we're putting on the internet, including like coffee makers and things like that. You know, basically the internet of things. <laughs> and I always see these internet of things breaches. and whenever they say internet of things, I always just replace it with computer and you can feel free to disagree. Like, you know, you're, you're the person who has the credentials that could absolutely disagree with me, but I always <laughs> see it as like, these things are just computers. I don't, I don't know why we, we attack the internet of things. I mean, there's, there's clearly issues like, um, you know, it feels like the internet of things as far as like computer security, like, um, I, you know, the stuff that we do at Microsoft, like we use all the lessons that we learned in, in computer security and apply that to IOT, yeah. but it feels like these other companies aren't treating it like that. They, they treat them as something different. So I, I wanted to kind of hear your take on, on IOT.
2: look, I can see it both ways. Um, just last month, I actually recorded a, a course with Pluralsight on IOT vulnerabilities. So this is something that's sort of oh. been <laughs> front of mind. It's, it's not out yet. So hopefully it'll be out soon, yeah. but, um, there are different ways of looking at this. And, and one way of looking at it is that I guess what makes it IoT as opposed to just Internet of Computers is that we are extending connectivity into things that we just never had connectivity in before. So, for example, I've written before about the, the Cloud Pets teddy bears uh, where there are some serious vulnerabilities there which leaked a whole bunch of kids' voices. Now, we didn't have internet and teddy bears <laughs> back in my day. <laughs> <Or> even, <laughs> even even like five years ago. You just didn't we had a teddy rocks, Ben. Yeah, that was different, right? Like he <laughs> yeah. did not have a Bluetooth device up his – yeah, anyway. So that was a very different situation. Uh, we are seeing IOT in everything from kettles to coffee makers uh, to adult toys. And, and what all of this means is that we have risks in places that we never had them before. It also means that we have a whole <laughs> so bunch of issues. <laughs> well, <laughs> you see, I try to be serious when I talk about this topic. Yep. It usually doesn't work. Um, <laughs> but since you've gone there, there is even a, a Twitter account dedicated to the testing of uh, IoT adult toys. It's called Internet of Dongs. And part <laughs> of the bio explains what it does in a very serious way uh, and it finishes the bio by saying, please stop laughing. But it 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 is actually, in all seriousness, it is a fascinating thing insofar as we are now seeing connectivity uh, in a device which we never had this sort of connectivity in before, Mm -hmm. it's collecting data of a nature that we never had data for before. And we've already seen a a recent lawsuit where uh, I believe the plaintiffs ended up getting about $13,000 each because the activity of when they were using the device was recorded and sent to the manufacturer of the device without them knowing it. Mm -hmm. Now we never had that problem before. So one of the things we're seeing is IoT is in places and collecting data, which is an all new challenge. But then we're also seeing the same old challenges and I, I think this goes to the point just now about it being computers where the, the Cloud Pets thing, this was a teddy bear recording voices but the, the big issue they had is they had their MongoDB sitting there in a publicly facing network segment with no password. Now, whether you've got a teddy bear recording voices or you've got some enterprise-y web app, if your database sits on the internet without a password, you're going to have a bad day of it. Yep. So you know, there's those aspects that are very interesting. Then there's the aspect of Very often, these IoT devices do actually allow remote control, and they will move physical parts of a device based on external commands. And there was a case I was involved in earlier last year with with Nissan, the the car maker, where they have a, a car called a Nissan Leaf, and you can pick up your iPhone or your Android, and you can turn on the temperature control in the car. So you can turn on the heating, turn on the air conditioning. And the only auth they had on this thing was it used the VIN number of the car in order to identify which car. <laughs> which is visible it externally. Now, there, well, there are two problems with the VIN number. Now, keeping in mind, this was used as an API key. One problem is, is that that API key is printed in the windscreen of every car. Right. So, yeah, not so good. The other problem is, is that they're easily enumerable because you could take the last five digits and just keep guessing numbers. Right. And every now and then, you'd hit another car. Uh-huh. And th- th- we actually tested this. Someone, someone in my workshop found it. So this was the ease, right? Someone who had one hour of training on this particular topic found this problem. And what we, what we identified is that we could hit an API endpoint that brings back the battery status and we were testing to see whether this was something that needed to be reported to nissan or not and we just kept guessing vin numbers and you'd see bing 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 like here's different vin numbers of different cars suddenly come up and yeah you actually have access to their battery status their trip history and we can turn their air conditioning on or off which would you could theoretically drain the battery right well you could drain the battery there's the privacy uh, aspect of it as well right which is that fortunately didn't have gps data but you know what time of day what distance and you you can start to create patterns of of behavior Mm -hmm. and and you know that was another good example to the earlier point about reporting incidents as well Uh, i reported to Nissan the the very next day and a month later they still hadn't fixed it couldn't give an eta basically just didn't want to deal with it uh, and then i went public with it so it, it is very very hard even once you find something as as egregiously bad as that to actually get it fixed so I follow internet.
0: Uh, you know, I don't want to beep this out. So internet of shit. Yeah, <laughs> I follow them on Twitter, and uh, the one that I saw today was um, it was a coffee machine. Uh, at in there, there was it was there were coffee machines that were being installed. Uh, at a chemical factories network, so I'll read you this little portion here. So, long story short, the coffee machines are supposed to be connected to their own isolated Wi-Fi network. However, the person installing the coffee machine connected the machine to the internal control room network. <laughs> um, so it, it then then basically, they ended up essentially what it sounds like is is bridging uh, these two different networks, uh, giving a path into the the chemical factory, uh, you know, bringing the factory down. So uh, you know, there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a fun it's a fun Twitter feed to to follow as well uh cuz they they point out you know all these like silly devices that we're putting online like i i don't know i i i have two different feelings on this because you know i i feel like like we i feel like we as the human species like have the ability to secure these things um but at the same time we're not doing it <laughs> not at least most of them are are unsecured or poorly secured
2: I think what we're seeing is just all of the bad practices that we've got in so much sort of web software that runs in the browser now being extended to all these other things. And and one of the the things that strikes me, whether it be IoT or or apps, uh, rich client apps on, on devices, is that the actual transport layer gets abstracted like one level behind. And what I mean by this is that if, if you're in the browser and you go to a site that, let's say, has a has no HTTPS, it's really obvious and your browser's warning you now. If it has an invalid certificate, big red stuff everywhere. If you see a URL that has like a user ID equals 200 in it, you, you look at it and you go, I wonder what would happen if I change it to 201. Mm-hmm. And when you go to any sort of rich client, that gets one level further back. And then the rich client can do things like not make HTTPS connections, not validate certificates. It hides these URLs that just by visibly looking at them look dodgy. And it just seems to, to be another veneer on top of all the lousy things that happen everywhere else, except it just gets pushed further and further away from visibility.
0: Yeah. Wow. Use a, use a good uh, framework, people. Build on, on top of a good platform. Um, anything else that you wanted to, uh, to mention you're
2: just dying to well, tell us? You, you know when you mention that using a good, good platform, so one of the things I, I see is that people do a really good job of screwing up even good platforms. Now, oh, yeah, I yeah. have I, I demonstrate this myself. So I have a website called Okay. and it's got about fifty plus different security vulnerabilities in there. It's got SQL injection and stuff all over the place. Oh. It's designed for people to play with and to see how security vulnerabilities work and then not go to jail. Now, all of that is built on MVC and Azure, and it's all like current modern-day stack, and it's terrible. Oh, yeah. In in the defence of particularly of of ASP.NET... I had to try hard to screw some of this up. You know, like, this <laughs> was not easy. Along, yeah. it, getting things like auth cookies to actually not be HTTP only is actually a hard thing to do. You <laughs> need to try <laughs> to mess that stuff up. So uh, certainly these technologies can help you fall into the pit of success, but uh, I, th- there just seems to be, like, no end to human creativity of how bad you can make a good thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, guns have safeties, but you can still shoot yourself in the foot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, should we move on? So, uh my pick of the week, I have a I have a time zone pick of the week which you've never had before. <laughs> but uh it's Time Zone Converter and it's at timeanddate.com. So I've a link in the show notes. This thing is amazing. So <laughs> the reason this came up, I always talk about how difficult uh scheduling podcasts is and now basically we're scheduling you tomorrow <laughs> cuz it's the 24th here in the US and it's the 25th in Australia. Uh good morning by the way. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I had no idea how to figure this out. And I'm like, man, I just need, I need something that lets me like, say at this time, what is it in this other place? So I found this beautiful page that lets you go in here. You can drop in any number of time zones or cities. So I actually dropped in Redmond. I put in green Bay and then I put in, um, gold coast, Australia, and then there's a little slider at the bottom and I can slide that back and forth and it actually changes all three times. So uh, for whatever time I want in whichever time zone, I can figure out what it is in these other ones. So I said, okay, this is at 3 p.m. My time, which meant that it was 8 a.m. Your time. And it was 5 p.m. Carl's time. Uh, so this, I don't know. I just wanted to promote this thing because it was, it was amazing for, for what I wanted to use it for. <laughs> so that's my time zone pick of the week. So Troy, there's a game that we play in the show. What I need to do is I need you to pick a number between one and four inclusive and let me know what it is.
2: Okay. Uh, let's go four.
0: four. Okay okay this is a kids game let me find a card here okay here we go would you rather live in a house made from legos or live in a house made from mud and palm leaves
2: <laughs> i i want to say lego but i know i'd step on the bits inevitably and that's a whole other problem uh Ooh, you know i'm yeah. gonna get well yeah yeah but then Although the, expensive. The, the, in, the insulating qualities of mud as well i think it might be useful
0: I wonder, wouldn't Lego be like super insulating though? I mean, if you had like a four inch wall of Lego, I
2: mean, think of all the air and plastic in there. Yeah. Maybe if you make it deep enough. I I, don't. I did not prepare for this question. If I'm honest, (laughs) (laughs) so equal thickness
0: of mud and Lego, which has better insulating properties? So somebody uh, send us a note or send us an email, and uh, we'll mention you on the show next time. Whoever, if somebody can can answer that definitively, because I'm kind of curious now. Because I'm thinking the air, but mud would be pretty darn good too. So okay, Carl, pick a number. I'll take number one. Number one. Would you rather suddenly turn into a dolphin and be in the ocean or suddenly turn into a monkey and be in the rainforest? Dolphin. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm thinking at was... all about that one. Yeah. I just, I not even, I don't even care about the question anymore. I I'm just <laughs> impressed by the speed of the answer. <laughs> He's just like, whatever it is, I'm going to pick the first one. <laughs> Very uh, cool. do-
1: Dolphins are pretty cool. And they live in uh, tropical areas, not too many predators. Yeah. Mon- monkeys, you got a lot of predators. Yeah. And you uh, got th- rainforest, Yeah, inclement weather.
0: You got uh, this urge dolphin- to throw your feces. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And uh, dolphins <laughs> love to play all the time. You know, it just looks like a lot better deal. Well, dolphins are perfect. They're uh- not, but they're better than monkeys. <laughs> but
0: anyway. <laughs> Those damn dirty uh- <laughs> apes. <laughs>
2: yeah. So, Troy, where can, uh, where can people find you? So, uh, TroyHunt.com is, is probably the easiest place. Uh, if you want to go to a website, if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm Hunt. And if you want to look at the, have I been pwned things, it's have I been poned, which is dot com as well. So uh, any of those places you'll, you'll find me there or, or you can find me on Google, probably Bing as well. Even I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you
0: can. Don't be like that. <laughs> <laughs> I use, I use Bing as my main search engine. It is possible. And I'm, I'm not a like I, I don't, I don't use everything Microsoft, but I do use Bing, but there's nothing wrong with Bing. So Carl, where can people find you? You can find
1: me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer.
0: And you can find me at ytechie.com or on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. So, Troy, thank you so much for coming on here and talking about uh, security and a lot of different aspects. It's uh, it's very cool and important stuff.
2: All right. So, hey, it's been a pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me.